Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On February 16th, Bishop Rhodes held a question and answer session with men attending the Rekindle the Fire conference in South Bend. This episode of Truth and Charity brings you the recording of that session with host Kyle Hyman, joined by Father Ben Mullenkamp, pastor at St. Louis Besanson Parish in New Haven. Without further ado, we'll get in some of the questions that people submitted from Rekindle the Fire here. Who was your confirmation saint, and why did you pick that saint? We did answer this December 6th, They're all going to be 2017. <laughs> if these are the kind of questions I'm getting today, this is easy. Wow. Start, start easy. Saint, saint John the Apostle, and I was in seventh grade, and I chose him because he was Jesus' best friend. That's... Yep. I kind of sorted these in, in thematic. So okay. besides St. Joseph, what other saint is a good role model for a good husband slash father? St. Thomas More. I mean, we know him for his courage and his martyrdom and how he stood up for his faith. Even though his life was endangered, he stood up for his Catholic faith and the authority of the Pope and the sanctity of marriage. But also, when you study his life, he was an amazing husband and father. Definitely his, um, uh, his own example of holiness, his life of prayer, his care for the poor. He um, gave a great example to his children, loved them with all his heart, and even though, especially his daughter and his wife, wanted him to succumb to King Herod VIII's demands, he also taught them that he loved them so much, but God had to come first. And I think that's important in the home as an example for all of you who are husbands and fathers to love your wives, to love your children with all your heart, but always first in your life is the Lord God himself. Can, can I add, there's a movie out there that if you've ever seen it, it's wonderful. It's called A Man for All Seasons. And I think that that would really be inspiring to you about the life. Definitely. All right, why did the diocese do away with the Faith, Hope, and Charity Chapel in downtown South Bend? Well, that was some years ago because we had two diocesan offices on this side of the diocese and we didn't need to. We had one in South Bend downtown that had the Faith, Hope, and Charity Chapel, and the tribunal was in the, in the basement. It wasn't very nice. And we had a very nice facility in Mishawaka next to uh, Marion High School. And rather than spend money, your money, to maintain two sites, we decided we only needed one center. So we chose the uh, St. John Paul II Center because it's larger and a uh, much better facility, yeah. All right. And also, regarding the chapel, because of all the Catholic churches we have, and right, a couple daily masses right down the street at St. Patrick's and St. Hedwig's, so, yeah. In our current times, what pragmatic ways can us men be radically Catholic and live the Word of God? Well, to be radically Catholic, to live the Word of God, means, I think, first of all, to be men who 
have God as the priority in their life, which is expressed by one's own life of prayer. To be radically Catholic means that one follows the gospel and the teachings of the church, stands up for them, even though we're all sinners, we strive to follow the teachings of Jesus, even when they're unpopular. And today, some of the teachings, uh, or many of the teachings, are countercultural, where they're rejected by many in our culture. So it's becoming more radical to be Catholic because there's more opposition. It's becoming more radical to live the gospel when there are so many currents of thought and action that go against the teachings of the gospel. So the thing is, be faithful, fidelity, and also to try not to let some of the values of the world that are not in line with the teachings of the gospel not to be affected by them and not to let or infected by them. I can give you a couple of examples. Obviously, the materialism. Today's gospel, we'll hear in a little bit when we have mass, is, the be, is gonna be the Beatitudes, according to St. Luke. Talk about being radical. You know, if we live the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, that's very radical. Certainly the teachings on sexuality. When we follow the Lord's call to chastity, whatever our state in life, whether we are married or celibate, that's pretty radical today. The consumerism. We try, if we strive to live a simpler life, to be generous with those who are in need, those who are less well off than ourselves, and we don't put material goods or physical pleasures for that matter, uh, number one, we're, we're going against so much of what we see uh, advertised to us. So I do believe being Christian, being Catholic today um, is a more radical choice. I think for our young men who are here, I especially want to mention, I've been so impressed by so many of our young adults who are active Catholics, when many of their peers are not, or are becoming religiously unaffiliated, they have to make a conscious, deliberate choice to be Catholic. It's not just something like maybe 40, 50 years ago, it was kind of culturally acceptable. Now, it's, that's very different. It's requiring a deliberate choice. Yeah, I'm gonna follow Christ. I'm going to go to church on Sunday, you know? So, I don't wanna go on too long. Yeah, yeah. I, I think with talking about young men, what is the number one thing to tell a man discerning a vocation in a society where it is hard to listen to God's voice? The idea, and I think they got it, it has to do with listening to God's voice. I think it means in this very noisy world where, and especially now with so much technology and our smartphones, we're all, we could get addicted to them. Like any spare moment, we're looking at our phone, we're trying, you know, we're texting, we're checking out this uh, app or whatever. No, I mean, if we're going to listen to the Lord's voice, we need silence in our lives. We need to make time for prayer. We need to, you know, there's a great new app that I've been really um, publicizing and advertising. You might want to write this down. If you're saying, Bishop, help me out with my prayer life. I highly recommend, and I'm not getting any commission on this, 
but I will admit that the ones who developed the app are uh, some guys that I know very well who graduated from Notre Dame three or four years ago, and they went out on their own and created this prayer app called Hallow, like hallowed be thy name, but it's H-A-L-L-O-W. It's the best prayer aid that I've seen. Because sometimes I'll say, and I'll say this to, to uh, uh, different people, they'll, they'll ask me about prayer, and I'll talk to them about how I love to do Lexio Divina, which is you know, the prayerful meditation on the scriptures. But I have to realize that a lot of times I'll say that to someone, they don't, they, they don't, they'll say, Bishop, well, I, I really don't know how to do that, <laughs> you know? So, well now, here's a how-to app. And, and some of the young people especially, but also some older people who've gotten it said, Bishop, this really helps me because it actually prays, it, it guides you in how to do Lexio Divina. And not just Lexio Divina, meditation with the scriptures, but all kinds of prayers. Helps you pray in the rosary, stations of the cross, more contemplative kind of prayer, and it gives you all kinds of options. So I mentioned that as a very practical resource, but getting back to that question, we have to have silence in our lives to listen to the Lord speaking to us. I also highly recommend to get back to something that I learned as a child, when we would go downtown in my hometown, we would never go downtown without stopping in church to make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament. I mean, how often do you guys stop in church? Is it just on Sunday? Why not just take five minutes, 10 minutes to pray before the Blessed Sacrament, to make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament. Hopefully their churches are open. Um, but I think that's a very powerful thing. Then, you know, we just spend time with the Lord. We stop in church. Um, It'd be amazing if you had your son with you or your daughter with you and you're stopping in and like, oh, th this is obviously a priority for my parent. Right. Now my dad wasn't Catholic, my mom was. So every time we would go downtown, she'd take my brother, my sister, we, we, would, we would always stop in. And that, that's just a vivid memory for me. And it was just so natural. Like we wouldn't think of going downtown without making a visit to Jesus, wow. you know? Wow. How you doing out there, dads? <laughs> Hear more from last month's Rekindle the Fire conference right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We're continuing our coverage of the question and answer session from last month's Rekindle the Fire conference in South Bend. Next question, what can the people in the pews do to help revitalize our parishes? Get involved. I think one of the things is, you know, I, we have parishes in our diocese where there are multiple opportunities to get involved with a lot of ministries, a lot of apostolates. Thing is, you have to discern in prayer, what is God calling you to do? What are your talents? What would be the best way you can help to build up the body of Christ in your parish? But it could be that your parish doesn't have a lot going on for whatever reason. And you might want to initiate something. Like I think about all the Rekindle the Fire groups we have now, a lot of that was not initiated by priests. It was, it was initiated by you guys, by the Rekindle the Fire men. 
and they might have to pa uh, pester their pastors a little bit. Go for it, you know? You know, ask if you wanna have a Bible study, if you wanna have a rekindle the fire group, whatever, you have some ideas, you can take initiative, you know, as well. Don't hold back, and if you have, um, you know, hopefully your pastor will be open, you know? Can I add, it was maybe October, September, I got this, this card, this note from somebody that they, they keep everything anonymous, they don't tell me what's going on. But since then, I've had somebody doing a holy hour for me every single day. Someone in my parish has been praying for me a holy hour every day, and I can tell you, my priesthood has never been better since my people have begun to pray for me. I know that sometimes we can be critical of our priests, We're, we've got our issues, yeah. But if you want us to be better priests, pray for us. I just want to share with you, pray for us. I just spilled water all over myself. So <laughs> don't, don't mind me over here. Uh, but speaking of praying for our priests, given all the secular pressures today, I don't seem to hear pulpit messages that bluntly remind me of the Catholic teaching about key societal issues. What is being done or should be done about this? Well, that's, that's a good question. I think it's going to depend on your priests. I mean, some do. And some may try to avoid topics because they don't feel comfortable. I always encourage our priests to be courageous. You know, don't be afraid to speak on difficult moral issues. Yeah, you might get flack because of it. But if you're preaching the church's teaching, I don't care if I get flack. I mean, I can sleep well at night because we have to preach the truth in season or out of season. But I do know a lot of our priests who are good at this too, that aren't afraid. But I mean, you could also encourage your priest, say, Father, I think it would be good. Could you cover this topic? A lot of people are thinking about it or talking about it. Would you please, you know, or just make a suggestion to the priest. And you try, I mean, when you look at the readings, a lot of times, you can bring in various contemporary problems or contemporary issues. As a preacher, when I pray over them, it'll bring something to mind. But of course, a homily is preaching on the Word of God, so it's got to be um, connected. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I've had people come to me and say, I'd really like to hear a homily about this. As a priest, I'm like, yep, that's great. I'm gonna file that away, and when the readings come around, boom, that's what I'm gonna do. I personally appreciate that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. I, not me, I, I'm reading this. I am studying to be a high school teacher. What do you believe is the most important thing that I should convey to the young adults in our society, specifically in the terms of our society changing the natural nouns of gender orientation and the issue of homosexuality? Okay. First of all, those difficult moral issues that a lot of our young people have trouble with the church's teaching in gender ideology, also homosexuality, same-sex marriage, etc. Number one, the students, and this is from experience, and also from talking to especially our Catholic high school teachers and my own observations. First of all, you can't begin as a teacher and come in and start talking about an issue like that. You have to build the relationship. And once the students know that you really 
are sincere and you care about them. This is like a priest preaching also, by the way, but also high school teachers. I know some of our high school teachers who do a great job teaching on these issues of homosexuality, of uh, transgender issues, and all of those things, and, and oftentimes they'll get challenged on it, but if they have the respect of the students, and the students know they really care about them, they're more open to hear the message. So I think that's really, really important. Also, the church's teaching is good news. It's not bad news. This is all about liberation from sin. It's all about living uh, a life that is ultimately fulfilling. You know, the gospel liberates us. It doesn't enslave us. We have to show them, and we have a great intellectual tradition, we have to show them and teach them how this teaching is for their own good. Um, for example, the gender stuff, which is the big thing nowadays, the gender ideology. I mean, it gets back to something so fu fundamental about God as our creator. And he created us male or female. And that's just fundamental Christian anthropology, theological anthropology. And when we mess with that, it's gonna, it brings all kinds of problems to individuals, families, and to society. So we have to explain to the young people that when someone is struggling with gender dysphoria, for example, where they are not identifying with their body, we need to reach out with Christ's love to such a person because that must be a terrible cross and great suffering. We don't condemn someone who's in that situation, but we know that the solution is not to violate God's law and to do procedures which would, you know, sex change operations or hormone therapy or whatever. All the social science evidence that we have shows that this isn't good. You know, besides the moral issue, suicide rate, rates of depression, etc., going through those kinds of procedures and surgeries, ultimately, for many people who go through it, it, it doesn't help, despite what the propaganda that we hear about in the gender movement. So we have to, I think, um, again, begin with loving the person, but explain. And the other thing we have to watch is now that this ideology has entered in, we have parents who are, if their child, a young child is saying that, or even a teenager for that matter, saying that they feel more like a, a woman or a, a girl than a boy when they're physically and biological, biologically and really a boy, a parent who's, who's buying into the gender ideology encourages them to change their, their gender. That is a huge mistake. All the evidence shows that there are children and there are teens who go through such a period and they grow out of it. Well, what happens if they've started to do hormonal therapy or even surgery, God forbid, you know? When, when the statistics I see is 80 or 90% of young people grow out of that. 
And now we have society kind of pushing in direction of, of having a sex change. I think that's, that's very, very harmful. Can I add, uh, there's a stat that says that 25% of young teenage girls will experience transitory same-sex attraction. But by the time those same girls turn 25, what percentage? Two, two and a half still experience that. But what they want you to do, the culture says, no, you gotta come out of the closet, you gotta identify with this. The Catholic Church says, whoa, 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 whoa. Your primary orientation is to God, okay? You just need to love God, you need to grow up, you're a teenager, you don't need to worry about figuring all this other stuff out. You just need to grow in relationship to God and his people during this time. So there's too much pressure on these 10-year-old kids, like, ooh. We are going to take a short break, but first, just a reminder that if you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future show, you can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We'll be right back with more Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We're continuing our coverage of the question and answer session from last month's Rekindle the Fire conference in South Bend. There was a whole stack of questions about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. You've addressed this several times on the show, October 17th, January 16th, and then the, the two main ones would probably be to direct people to is August 29th, uh, the McCarrick issue came out and the Pennsylvania grand jury you're talking about. And then on October 17th uh, with Donald Schmid, who's on the review board, had a great conversation with the two of you about it. So if you want more details, go into that. I picked out one question that I thought kind of summed up a lot of the questions. It said, what is your message to men who may be questioning their faith because leaders within the church hierarchy that commit slash cover up abuses by those men meant to administer and protect the church? Right, no, that's a good question. First of all, be informed. Um, you, I, I apologize if you, I've talked about this issue so much, so many of you have probably heard it already. Those who are young adults, we talked about this two weeks ago, over 100. But let me just try to summarize this as best I can. First of all, we have to identify what is the crisis, okay? What is the crisis today? And I think it's important to understand the history a little bit. The cases of clerical sexual abuse of minors, this horrible stain on the life of the church that caused so much damage in the lives of the victims and survivors. It was mishandled years and years ago by everybody, including the Catholic Church. Of course, all you mostly see is how the Catholic Church mishandled it. But what happened? The sexual abuse of minors, when you look at the statistics by Catholic priests, really peaked around 1970 and the early 70s. Okay, so we have this awful thing that happened, built up 
throughout the 1960s. Think about what was going on in society. There was a lot of depravity. And that depravity entered into the church, especially via this crisis. Bishops at that time really didn't know this was going on because reports only started coming out just very, very few in the 70s when this was happening, because often victims don't come forward until many years after. In the 80s, the U.S. bishops started realizing we have a problem here because in the 1980s, more victims started to come forward. It had already peaked and it was already in decline, but it was now coming to the awareness of bishops. The first bishops early on saw this as a moral failing. They did not understand. They saw it as a very grave sin but as far as the harm that this really did to victims, they didn't have much understanding. So I think early on they made a big mistake. They just said, well, you have to repent. You know, it was like other sins, you repent and not much more was done. As time went on by the 80s, they started realizing, no, there's a psychological problem here. So they sent these men, these priests, for treatment, for psychological help. When they did so, a lot of these treatment centers, they'd stay for like six months. They'd send the priest back to the diocese and give their opinion of whether he could continue in ministry or not. And generally, bishops tr trusted them. They shouldn't have. And they put them back in parishes endangering other youth. Not intentionally, you know, but it happened. So they looked at the spiritual part, then the, and then we get into the 90s. By that point, they said, we need some procedures on how to handle this. They came up with five principles uh, because they saw this is a bad problem. And the five principles talked about removing the priests who've done this, Various things. But all through this time, they were neglecting the victims. They were concentrating on the priests, the abusers. Meanwhile, the victims who came forward were kind of treated like the enemy. And that breaks my heart. They were, they were so hurt. They needed healing. And I think bishops at that time you know, they were afraid of lawsuits or whatever. And the lawyers are telling them not to talk to the victims. That was wrong. That was terribly wrong. And again, I don't think they realized the, the, the lifelong harm that sexual abuse did to these people. More and more knowledge is coming then. So you go through the 90s, and then we had in 2002, the crisis, the public scandal with the Archdiocese of Boston. Now, there had been some others, a few, one in Louisiana and one in Fall River, Massachusetts, these terrible serial abusers. But it looked like it was pretty more isolated. Well, when they did that, Boston Globe did their investigation, we found out that the numbers were much higher. So that was when all of us became aware. This is a big problem. 
So in 2002, the bishops, before I was a bishop, but in 2002, the bishops gathered in Dallas and came up with the charter for the protection of children and young people. I want to keep in mind, even by that time, the cases were declining quite a bit because the decline started in the 80s. So the numbers were, had peaked in the 70, early 70s. They were going down. But we were getting all these reports from those who were abused in the 1960s and 70s and some in the early 80s. So in 2002, the, the principles that they had come up with in the 90s were not obligatory. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops came up with these principles, but it wasn't like law. It, they weren't norms. Well, in 2002, they became norms. Now, we had to get Vatican approval, which said basically one strike, you're out. One case of sexual abuse of a minor that's credible and proven, investigated, proven, no more ministry, no more public ministry. And there are two things that could happen to an abuser. One is that they could be made to live a life of prayer and penance, which means they would remain priests, but they couldn't do any public ministry, no sacraments, no preaching, couldn't wear clerical garb or anything like that. Or the more extreme is the ultimate penalty, being dismissed from the clerical state, which is what you see called defrocked, like Theodore McCarrick was defrocked today. He was dismissed from the clerical state. We are going to take another short break, but first, just a reminder that if you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future show, you can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. We'll be right back with more Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We now return you to the Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference, and Bishop Rhodes responding to a question about the sexual abuse crisis. So, throughout the rest after the Charter, by that time, okay, we have the norms, there's zero tolerance. Any priest who has abused a minor is removed. Many are dismissed from the clerical state. Others are made to live a life of prayer and penance. That determination is by the Vatican. The bishop who, every time we receive an accusation and we do our investigation and it's credible, we have to send it to Rome. Rome decides if there's enough evidence, etc., and whether the man would be dismissed from the clerical state or have a life of prayer and penance. We give our opinion. It's a called, a, called a votum. Since I've been a bishop, which is a little over nine years, I had one case of an active priest when I was Bishop of Harrisburg. Of course, that was after the charter, so he was removed. He wasn't even a diocesan priest. He was a religious order priest, but he was a pastor in the diocese. So in my five years in Harrisburg, I only had one. Now, I had others who other victims who came forward of priests who had already been removed. Here in Fort Wayne, South Bend, I ha I've had in, in my, um, my time here, I've had to, no, I've been a bishop more than nine years. I've been a bishop nine years here, bishop 14 years. I've had to remove three active priests. 
Again, we followed the, all the procedures. The charter requires a diocesan review board. We have a great diocesan review board, lay people and a couple priests who are experts in areas like law enforcement, psychology, and other areas. So, so I really depend on them very much for their advice, because every time there's a report, I bring it to them, which I think is a really important thing that came out of the charter. And every priest that I've removed, I made public at the time. Those that were removed before I became bishop, removed by my predecessor or predecessors, they were not made public, most of them. Some were, because it got into the news. And as you probably know, some months ago, I made those names public of those that my predecessor had removed. And the reason I did that, the reason I did that is I learned from the victims that it was very important to them as part of their healing. And one of the results that comes from the public release of names is that it encourages other victims to come forward for help. So what's the crisis now? Well, one of the things that I think we have to get out, we, we have to say very clearly, the numbers have gone way, way down since the charter, even we're going down before the charter. So when you see in the news, new wave of sexual abuse of minors by priests, that's false. There's no new wave, you know, that's just false. Now that's how the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report came out. But when you read the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, these were cases from way back. I think what was so disturbing about the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report was it got into all the details and it was horrible to read. I mean, it was diabolical the way some of these priests acted. What better way for Satan to, to uh, attack us, you know? And then the fact that some bishops in some dioceses covered things up. But that's years ago. The bishops today, since 2002, have to follow the charter and the norms. And, but the problem is, what if you have a bishop who doesn't follow the charter and norms? There was no mechanism to hold bishops accountable. Now that's what I think is part of the crisis today is we need a mechanism to hold bishops accountable. Not only so they're not negligent in this, but also if a bishop was an abuser. Because before, they weren't included. Now, why was that? Well, back in 2002, from what I understand, it was before I was a bishop, they didn't think they had the authority to legislate on this about bishops. They could only legislate on priests, that it'd have to be the Vatican, which would hold bishops accountable. Well, you have the McCarrick thing. Who was holding him accountable? We still don't know. I mean, I'm happy he was laicized today, but that's only, in my mind, there are more questions, you know, that we need answers for. How did he, since some knew, now they didn't know that he had abused minors, but they knew he had sexual misconduct with seminarians. That was a rumor. 
how did he then get appointed from Newark to Washington? And how did then, did he become named a cardinal? We still don't have answers to those questions. You know, the bishops are angry about this. <laughs> like, we want to know. So, you know, they have to look at the Vatican files like, who knew, you know? How did that happen? So if you look at what is the crisis today, okay, we need a way to hold bishops accountable, and we have some proposals, the U.S. bishops, but we weren't allowed to vote on them, you know, as you know, when we met in November. So this le next week, you'll have the heads of the Episcopal conferences meeting at the Vatican, meeting in Rome. Uh, hopefully, we'll be, there'll be some, something set up to hold bishops accountable. That would be more of what I would say is the crisis today, which is really connected to the whole McCarrick fiasco. But I think it's important to think, I, I really think the charter has been effective. I, I mean, I think our churches, our parishes, our schools are safe environments for children and young people. Much safer than a lot of other institutions. Bishop, can you speak to the fact that we haven't had, it's been a very long time since we know of someone getting abused in our diocese? Yeah. I. Was it, was it like 28 I, years? It's been probably, well, there's one, there might be one case, again, it was before I was bishop, so I don't remember the year, but um, I think there was one case in the early 2000s before I came here, okay. but I don't, I think it was a deacon. Right. But it's been, you know, we don't have any um, I, I new cases, 20, most like you said, in that one case, like maybe 28 years. But you wouldn't know that if you read the paper. You'd think this is still going on. The other thing is that we've learned, and I think this is, we looked at the causes of this. One really, really important thing is the formation our men are receiving in the seminary. Number one, the screening that we do. Now, there's no perfect way to screen out people who have sexual deviancies. But there are, you know, we do the psychological exams and we do everything. But you also have to have testimony that these guys are mature. In other words, some of this, these abusers, they were, I would say, psychosexually stunted. I mean, to be attracted sexually to minors. By the way, this is not pedophilia. There were maybe 5% of the cases were pedophilia. That means less, uh, uh, younger than puberty. This was a problem uh, primarily of sexual attraction to teenagers and 80% of them being boys. So it's connected to the whole issue of, um, of, of homosexuality as well. Some people say, well, is it the pro a problem of homosexuality or is it in the clergy or is it a problem of clericalism? You know, you hear those both sides. Well, I don't think we should take sides. I think it should be, look at the whole thing and find the truth. I think it's both. I think it's kind of complex. You know, I don't think we could simplify it. But I think basically we had these men who were, you know, psychologically stunted in their sexual development. I mean, so we have to weed that out. So our screening now is much better. And then the formation. And what are the, in the profile of an abuser, most abusers did not have friends their own age. In other words, they were priests who 
didn't relate well with their own peers, other priests or, or other adults their age. So they were, their emotional attraction was to these young people and physical attraction, whatever it is. But so you have to look at that. Okay, if someone doesn't have healthy human relationships of those their age or near their age, there's a problem. So we look for that in the seminarians. They have to have affective maturity. In other words, be good, healthy men. You know, before you even get into all the spiritual things that we want, you know, humanly speaking. Thanks to John Paul II, seminary formation in the 90s really, really became much, much better because the foundation of all priestly formation now is human formation. And celibacy and living a life of chastity, you have to look at the human side and the spiritual. Obviously, we're talking about grave sins that were committed, but there were also psychological things involved in, in, in these men. So you have to look at the human. We want good, strong human formation, good, strong spiritual formation, and also morally. An adherence and belief and conviction that the church's moral teachings in sexuality are the truth. And one is going to preach that, and one is going to live that. I, I know this, and talking about this, I'm taking a lot of time, sorry, but it was kind of the elephant in the room. I need to talk about it. But I want to give you some hope. I do have a lot of hope, especially as I look at our seminarians today, our young priests, and see their commitment, but even hope for the victims. One of the most emotional and moving things for me is when I've worked with a victim and seen healing take place. Because I always, always am open to seeing victims. I don't force them, but they're always invited to meet with me. And they can share their suffering, but then I can try to be an instrument of Christ's love and healing to them. And we've had victims who've just cried their eyes out in my office, and my heart's broken for them. But then also, seeing God's grace at work and his healing power, and even some who've returned to the full practice of the faith is, is just beautiful to see, you know. I'm so grateful that my bishop is not afraid of truth. He's like, bring it out. What do we got to be afraid of? Just bring it out. So I yeah. thank you, Bishop Rose. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll just add that uh, we also have a great archive of information from Bishop from Truth and Charity. If you go to RedeemerRadio.com or if you download the Redeemer Radio app, there's a whole archive of all the past shows where he answers questions that people submit, comments on things that are happening in the liturgy, things that are happening in the world. And I've learned so much from it. And I think you would too. I want to say one last thing about the crisis today because I can't leave because I forgot to say this. I talked about it, Bishop's accountability. We also, part of the crisis is how we deal with sexual misconduct 
that priests would have with adults. That's a whole nother area. I think that was part of the crisis this summer with the McCarrick thing, because that doesn't fall under the charter for protection of young people, because we're not talking about minors. But sexual misconduct with adults is like adultery. I mean, it's, it's a serious, serious sin. And we have to expect our priests to live chaste lives. So I think that's the other thing that um, I have much more confidence too, in the, that we have healthy, healthy men in the seminary and healthy men being formed who are also committed to living chaste lives. That's the other part of the crisis today is, is some of the sexual misconduct with adults. So I don't wanna leave without mentioning that. For more information on Rekindle the Fire, check out rekindlethefire.net. Mark your calendars for next year's conference, February 22nd, 2020, in Fort Wayne. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.